Yeah, we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Proverbs. It's in the middle of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs. We'd love for you to have your own that you can take that home and, and keep with you. It's going to be page 527 in the Black Bible, Proverbs chapter 3. The series we're embarking on this summer is called Scandalous Wisdom. And the big idea, as we call the Proverbs series, Scandalous Wisdom, is that as we learn biblical wisdom, as we conform ourselves to the image of Jesus, as we walk with Jesus and live biblically, it's going to be scandalous and shocking to the world around us. Um, But it's actually also going to be grace-giving. As we walk with Him, as we obey Him, we're going to both uh, receive grace in our own life, the grace of wisdom, but we're also going to have something to give. We're going to have a blessing to give to others. So scandalous wisdom, we're learning more and more what it means to walk in uh, the grace of God's wisdom. This week, as we enter into chapter 3, this is kind of a famous section. A lot of people that have been walking with Jesus for a while have memorized some of these verses. So in Proverbs chapter 3, we're calling it grace-based wisdom. It's the idea of leaning on God and not leaning on yourself. Grace-based wisdom. Um, To try to illustrate the idea here, I think it's helpful to think about us as human beings being oxygen-based creatures. We need oxygen to survive. So if any of you have ever ridden on an airplane, um, right at the beginning of the airplane ride, they give you clear instructions that if for some reason, way up in high altitude, you lose cabin pressure, you lose oxygen, oxygen masks are going to pop out. And what are you supposed to do? You are supposed to desperately grab hold of those and bind them to your face, wrap them around your neck. They've got straps. Tighten those straps. Breathe deeply of that oxygen because we're oxygen-based creatures. We need the oxygen to survive. And we have a very simple concept here as well that grace is something we need from God. We need the gift of God's kindness, his forgiveness, his steadfast love for us. We need that to survive in this world to survive our own sin and the sin of others. We need the gracious, steadfast love of God. There's a key verse here in this text in verse 3 that says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. The word steadfast love in the Hebrew, it's translated that way in our English. It's chesed. Um, And one of the best ways to translate that could be grace. Um, It doesn't have like an exact one-to-one for our word of grace in the New Testament. We've got grace and agape, covenant love in the New Testament. And kind of both of those together could be translated in the Old Testament. Hesed, it's this steadfast love, this gracious love. It's something we need from God to survive. Salvation doesn't come from us. Salvation comes from God. Just like the oxygen mask dropping out of the sky, we need God to live It often can feel like we're able to live without the oxygen of God's grace, but I I want to convince you, and I believe the author to the Proverbs wants to convince you that you're not going to make it long without the oxygen of God's grace, without the grace of his wisdom. So let's read chapter 3. We're going to read through verse 12. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for a length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, but bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths." 
Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Grace-based wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We're trusting in him, not in ourselves. We're taking hold of his steadfast love, his gracious love for us. We're binding that to ourselves. We're saying, this is my only hope. This is what it means to learn grace-based wisdom. Uh, In the New Testament, we often summarize grace with the acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. So we most clearly see grace through what Jesus did for us. Jesus came for us. He lived the life that we didn't live perfectly, loving others, always standing up for what's right. He died a sacrificial death in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He rose from the dead, proving that he had defeated sin and death, that he had conquered the powers of evil. And so as we trust in the Lord, as we trust in his grace, we have freedom, we have forgiveness. We're set free to begin walking with him. That's seen really clearly in the New Testament through the cross of Christ. It's also seen back here in the Old Testament, which says, trust God. Don't keep trusting yourself. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. So we're going to spend a moment and just pray that this reality would come home for us, that God's Spirit would make this real, that we would really see His goodness, see His greatness, that we would be changed by it. So let me pray. God, we ask that you would meet us here as we study your word, that your spirit would change us, that your spirit would help us to fear you more than all the other things that we worry about and are distracted by. Help us to see this amazing vision of your bigness, your holiness, your awesomeness, your grace, your kindness to us. We thank you for who you are, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So again, the big idea is grace-based wisdom. The, the big idea is that it's God's grace that we're looking to. We're not looking to ourself. That wisdom, that even obedience, those are all gifts of God's grace. And we have a lot of hints of this in different places in the Old Testament. Um, I think it's safe to say that when we read our Old Testament, we see more law and judgment. That's the vibe we get from the Old Testament. But grace is there. In the Ten Commandments, the the famous section that says, obey, 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 right? In the Ten Commandments, it starts off, the preamble of the Ten Commandments is, I'm the Lord, I'm the God that saved you, right? So he starts with the saving, adopting grace before he says, now obey me. When he's giving the commandments physically to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, he appears to Moses, of course, Moses can't really see him, so he has to hide Moses behind a rock and just kind of like, the backside of God's glory passes by. But when God is revealing himself to Moses, somewhat hiding Moses because Moses can't handle the full glory of God, he proclaims to Moses who he is. And he says, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So this is a repeated theme throughout Scripture, that God's gracious love, his steadfast love is what saves us. He is our hope. And then we obey because of that. We walk in wisdom because of the grace that God has given to us. So in this text, we're going to see three surprising forms of grace. Three surprising forms of grace that we don't, in our fallenness, immediately think of as gracious. 
The first one is the grace of authority. The second one is the grace of humility. And then the third one, I had a hard time summarizing this. The third one is the grace of real life. Real life. The hard knocks of real life. So the grace of authority, the grace of humility, and the grace of real life. So starting off, we see the grace of authority. In verses 1 through 4, verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. What does commandment mean? That means an authority has told you what to do. God commands all people everywhere to obey Him. And then He gives us parents and bosses and leaders that also command us to obey them, right? There's authority everywhere we go. We're always under some kind of authority. Here it's son to child or father to son, parent to child. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you a basic foundational principle that's laid out in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, is that as we honor our father and mother, it will go well with us. We will live long in the land. This is repeated in the New Testament letter of Colossians. It's just a basic fundamental principle, not something that our culture is very good at at all. So we want to you know, try to be even-handed about it. Man, there's some awesome entrepreneurial independence, creativity that our culture produces, Right? But we really struggle with obedience to authority. That's hard in our culture. My theory of the commandments of God is that every culture is, is kind of okay with six or seven of them, and then we have a couple that we hate. I think in our culture, we hate the commandments about sexual immorality, and we hate the commandments about obedience to authority. I think we kind of like the other ones, right? But we don't like those commandments. Well, here, we're challenged to obey these commandments. That authority is actually a gift, I think there are two ditches with authority that we want to avoid. Here are the, the two ditches. One ditch is don't obey abusive authority that asks you to break commandments. Okay? I think that's the line. If the authority over you is asking you to break commandments, don't do it. Right? That's pretty simple. Now, obviously, there are very sticky situations where you're unsure and you're like, I don't know, you know, and it gets complicated. But that's, that's the baseline. Don't obey abusive authority that asks you to break commandments or dishonor God not worship Him, not honor Him. But here's the other ditch. Don't confuse rude or emotionally challenging authority with abuse. I think that's the other side of the wagon our culture keeps falling off of, right? This person told me something I don't like. They're not letting me be my full self. That means they're abusing me, hating me, trying to kill me. No, no, when people challenge you, that's not violence, Truth is truth. And even if someone challenges you and you disagree with them, in the end, they're not killing you, right? Y'all just had a disagreement. And so we have to be careful about how we define these things in our culture. But the big idea is that authority is a grace. Authority is a gift that God gives to us. Paul Tripp reminds us that we are always under some kind of authority, there was a parenting video. I don't know if y'all saw it. I've, I had like two or three friends uh, forward this to me this week. Uh, a video by Paul Tripp, a biblical counselor about parenting. He says that we're always under authority, right? Sometimes it's more explicit. Sometimes it's harder to see, but we're always under an authority. You, you always have someone that's kind of in charge of you, right? Might be a lot of people <laughs> when you're little. Might be not very many people, but there's always people in charge of you. Paul Tripp says this, here's God's plan. God makes his invisible authority visible in the lives of children 
by sending parents of authority to represent his authority in the lives of children who need authority. Do you like that? He's really trying to like rub that gross word we don't like in our face there. I'm going to say it one more time. Here's God's plan. God makes his invisible authority visible in the lives of children by sending parents of authority to represent his authority in the lives of children who need authority. Kids die without authority. We need authority. He jokes about, you know, when you're having a showdown with your kid about eating vegetables or bedtime, it's not because they know better than you on the subject of vegetables or bedtime. It's an authority issue, right? You know better than them. And again, there is abusive authority. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the general framework of authority living in line with the nature in which it's given to guard and protect and care for the wholeness and health of the person that it's overseeing. And so we should see authority as a gift, right? Not absolutely every moment, you know, sometimes it's abusive, sometimes we shouldn't obey when it's telling us to disobey our ultimate authority, which is God. But generally, we should see authority as a gift from God, even when authority challenges us to do stuff we don't like. Man, some of the best things I've learned in my life are from authorities that I thought were stupid, telling me to do things I didn't like, but they weren't sins, so I had to do them, right? And that shaped me. That taught me humility. That taught me over the long term to see the grace of that authority. I often then had that hindsight as twenty twenty, or I was able to look back and go, oh, okay, maybe I did disagree with them at the time, but it was, really, it was really good for me. It shaped me. It strengthened me over time. Ephesians and Colossians pick up these uh, challenges and these uh, kind of reiterating the Ten Commandments on authority. Ephesians 6.1 is one of them. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It was the Apostle Paul in the New Testament restating the Ten Commandments. I grabbed a picture here of Moses giving the Ten Commandments. I said earlier, we don't often think of the commandments as gracious. We think of them as something to obey. We sometimes get confused with law and gospel. You, you cannot obey your way into God's love. God gives you love and then says obey. And even in the Ten Commandments, that's clear. Go back and reread Exodus chapter 20. He says, I've loved you, I've saved you, now obey me because you trust me now. Even the Ten Commandments have that uh, law-grace distinction that is clear. So Paul is describing this in Ephesians 6. And if you've read the book of Ephesians, the entire chapter 1 and 2 hammers home that there is nothing we could do to save ourselves. It's absolutely the sovereign grace of God. He's the one that has adopted us. He's the one that saved us. So really in Ephesians, you have a similar picture to the Ten Commandments, right? In the Ten Commandments, you've got the short little preamble that says, I'm the one that saved you, and then he gives you the commandments to obey. In Ephesians, it's like two full chapters of, I've saved you, I've saved you, I've saved you. Now obey me. Now trust me. Because I have your good in mind. So we're told to obey our parents. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. There are real physical benefits to obedience. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and authority. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. I keep slipping in authority even more than it's when it's there. We are to obey authority joyfully. See it as a gift, as a grace, something that God has given to us to help us, to protect us. We're also to exercise authority joyfully as a grace, right? When you're in charge of someone, when you're a commander 
or a teacher or a manager or a parent and you have authority over someone, that authority is not because of how awesome you are. It's a stewardship of grace you've been given to help that person be healthy and whole, to direct them to truth, to show kindness to them, to serve them, to help them. So we are to obey authority joyfully and exercise authority joyfully because of God's kindness to us in Christ. Paul continues his argument on authority in Ephesians 6, talking to bondservants and masters. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not to be seen. Some of the translations say not I service as people pleasers, right? It's not just to, to be seen, but you're, you're serving your master as if you're serving the Lord with a good will, working for God and not for man. And then he repeats the same thing back on the authority. And masters, make sure you're showing grace to those that work for you. Masters do the same. Don't threaten. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He's not impressed with your authority. He's going to judge fairly. No partiality. So the big idea is that authority is a grace. It's a grace whether you're under authority or you're exercising authority. Authority is a grace that God has given us. The grace of authority. My son, don't forget my teaching. Let not your heart, uh, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And then he goes on with the key verse that I've kind of been using for our big idea. Let not steadfast love, his gracious love, as chesed, his, his grace, his kindness to us. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness. Faithfulness is consistency, the trustworthiness of God. It's often translated as well, truth, right? We think of truth as an abstract principle floating in the sky. That's the Greek influence on our society. In the Hebrew concept, faithfulness and truth are like the same thing. God's faithfulness, his reliability. It can be translated truth. He's trustworthy. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your hearts. You will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Little excursion here. Can God's grace forsake us? I think this is poetry here. Because I think the broad sweep of Scripture says that once you're in the hand of Jesus, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. So he won't forsake you. The forsaking is us forsaking God. That's really the issue. Don't don't forsake him. Grab onto that oxygen mask and, and cling to it, knowing this is the only way you survive is by looking to the Lord, trusting his steadfast love, trusting his faithfulness. I think that's the idea here. There's a sense of urgency. We have to be desperate, as we said Last week, grabbing hold of God and clinging to Him as our only hope, this alien, external righteousness and wisdom and grace that comes to us from the outside, from Him, not from ourselves. We don't keep looking inside our own heart. We don't keep looking inside our own navel, navel gazing, looking at self, thinking of who we really are. No, we look at God. That's how we learn who we really are. So the exercise is we should obey the authorities God has put over us, and then also exercise authority with grace. What does that look like in your own life? Lord, who are the authorities that you've placed in my life that I don't want to obey because I think I'm way smarter than them, right? That's not an exception clause in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, obey authorities unless you're smarter than them, right? That's, That's not how it works. You obey authority unless that authority tells you to disobey God. Otherwise, we obey 
authority parents, bosses, government leaders, elders and teachers in the church. I want to make a little excursion on elders and teachers in the church to be clear. You only obey me. You only obey your Sunday school teachers. You only obey elders in the church to the degree that we speak these words. That's where the authority lies. There's this phrase that goes around sometimes in churches, don't touch the Lord's anointing. Any of you ever grew up in a church that used that phrase? That was what King David would say about not wanting to kill Saul. He's like, God's anointed him. I know I'm anointed to be the next king, but I'm not going to kill him. I'm going to wait until God takes care of it, right? So David would use this phrase about not touching the Lord's anointed. He didn't want to take down the current king. That doesn't really apply very well to pastors, okay? I just, I don't think you should use that for me. I would say, listen to me when I'm speaking this word. Listen to me only when I'm speaking the truth of this book. And the same goes for your friends, right? We're all to exhort one another in Christ. We're all to encourage one another in the word. And so in that sense, we all have a biblical authority over each other's lives. It's to the degree that we're exhorting according to the gospel, according to the the truth, the steadfast love, the faithfulness of God himself. My old pastor used to say it like this, that for a parent, that your job as a parent is helping your kid transition from um, being totally dependent on you to being totally dependent on God, right? Because there's going to come a day when you launch your child out of your house. And theoretically, you'll still be one of the most influential people in their lives, but you should not be as influential with a 20-year-old as you were with a 2-year-old. That's just not healthy, right? They should still honor you, respect you in some sense, right? But, but you're transferring independence as you transfer dependence on God. Constant movement towards God. Okay, the other grace is the grace of humility. The grace of humility. We see this in verses 5 through 8. The grace of humility. This is the famous verse. I think this was on the wall when I was a kid. I know I memorized this when I first became a Christian as a young man. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. This is a fantastic verse to memorize. If you're just starting to learn the Bible, just starting to toy with memorizing verses and memorizing scripture. This is a great one to memorize. I really encourage you to memorize. This is a great place to start. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It's looking to God, not looking to self. This is exactly the opposite of what our culture is telling us. Our culture say, says, look to yourself. How do you feel? What do you think? Look deeper, look deeper, look deeper. No, the scripture says, no, look out. And as we look out at God, then we'll understand better who we are then we'll know what it is to be the creature that God has created. And again, it's an alien righteousness. It's an outside righteousness. It's a goodness that exists in God, and we need that, and we accept it by faith. And so we look and trust and rely on God and don't rely on ourselves. I grabbed a picture of a family hiking through the woods, hiking on a trail. My wife and I joke a lot about how she prefers marked trails. I'm a little more of a free spirit. I like to wander, right? And her theory is that if we wander off the trail, that we'll get mauled by bears. But if we stay on the trail, we won't get mauled by bears. I'm like, I don't think the bears care, you know? Um, I think they're going to eat us wherever they find us, really. But in the ancient world, to be fair, my wife's probably right. A lot more dangers in the ancient world. A lot more predators in the ancient world, right? We don't have a lot of predators at Dana Peak Park. I haven't seen one yet, right? 
But there were a lot more predators in the ancient world. And to mark out a clear path, a safe path, a safe trail is very important. It was a life and death issue. So here the idea is that as you trust in God, he, he makes the way clear for you. Cool thing is Jesus picks up that language in the New Testament, right? In John 14, where he says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the road. He's the path. And so we see this started here in the Old Testament. This grace of humility as we lean on God, we start to have a way that's clear. In our Proverbs art, the little poster in the back and the, the art we've been using for the series, we have a little, little lamp, a lantern, lighting a path. That's a consistent metaphor for the Word of God. God's Word helps us to see clearly. John Calvin used it as a, a glasses metaphor. He said, we see God revealed in creation, and then as we pick up His Word, special revelation helps us to read general revelation. Helps us to see clearly the truth of God. There's truths that God's just revealed in the world. And then there's very specific truths He's revealed here in Scripture. And the spectacle, so to speak, so that we can read the greater truths in the world are are the Bible themselves. The Bible is like the glasses we put on so we can read the world rightly. We can understand what's going on around us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is giving us more context now for this fear the Lord idea, right? We've been talking a lot about fearing the Lord. It's a big theme here in Scripture. It's not the running away kind of fear. It's the kind of fear that says God is more important than anything else. He's the one that makes sense of the world. I don't make sense of the world. He makes sense of the world. Jonathan Cobb, when he preached a few weeks ago, he used the analogy of you don't navigate on a boat with a lantern strapped to the mast. You navigate by the stars. You have to navigate by something outside of your position. God is the one that is steadfast. And so humility is saying, he knows, I don't. Humility is the fear of the Lord, saying God is great, I'm not great. God is powerful, I'm not that powerful. God is the one that will direct me. I can't direct myself. I need him to direct me. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, we have to be careful about this. There's some Christians that go to the extreme that say you should um, never use medicine and just pray, right? God will heal your, heal your flesh and refresh your bones, and that, that's it. That's all you ever need. I think we're a complex mix of all these things, right? Medicine can be helpful, but there's so much that we're discovering more and more in our life of like, oh, when I live a life of peace and prayer and consistency and rest and hard work and live biblical ideals in balance, there is real physical refreshment to our bodies. Our bodies benefit from that. This is a reality. Again, in the Proverbs, we have to be careful not making it mechanical, not like a one-to-one. If you're obedient, you'll never be sick. That's, That's crazy, right? We're sick. The world is broken. Things just happen to us, right? But there is genuine goodness that comes out of obedience. Genuine refreshment that comes. So don't think of it mechanically. Like whatever disease I have, if I just obey, it'll be magically eradicated. It's not quite that simple, right? But there is real blessing in obeying God. There's real blessing in seeing Him as our King, as our God, as our leader. You will see real changes in your life. I have another quote from Paul Tripp. Uh, This a friend shared from his uh, devotional book this week. Tripp says, You're hardwired to depend on God, so your dreams of self-reliance and self-sufficiency will prove to be more nightmares 
than dreams. Self-reliance and self-sufficiency are what sin does to the heart. Hosea 10.13 captures this. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Hosea 10 is contrasting our trusting in our way and our warriors, our strength, our flesh, with trusting in the Lord. And sin is the result of that. When we trust in self, sin results. Death results. Brokenness results. We go off the trail. We go off the path. He says, this is hard to accept, but vital to humbly, humbly admit. Bad things happen when we attempt to live as we were not created to live. Sin causes us to deny our need for God and others. Sin causes us to assign to ourselves the wisdom, strength, and righteousness we do not have. We do not have. So what does it look like to to receive the grace of humility with joy? To trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Two very fundamental spiritual practices that were consistent in the Old Testament, consistent in the New Testament, are reading Scripture and praying. Listening to God's voice in Scripture and speaking to God in prayer. Are you making these habits of your life? Are you listening to what he says? His guidance, his direction, the lamp unto our feet. Are you seeing the path that he's marked out for you in Scripture? Are you humbling yourself? Are you trusting in the Lord and not trusting in your own guidance? Are you reading Scripture? Are you studying Scripture? Are you memorizing Scripture? Are you praying Scripture? Are you listening to Scripture? Are you singing Scripture? Scripture needs to be a part of our lives. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. It's not just an abstract exercise of trying to learn more information so we can show off what we know at a Bible study. You know, well, the Greek word means blah, blah, blah. No, it's like, God is speaking to me. What does God have to say to me? I need God to speak to me. Are you listening? Are you exercising the grace of of humility before God saying, God, I need your direction, not my own. And then prayer is, is speaking to him. I think it's really helpful to balance in our own spiritual life Scripted prayers and spontaneous prayers. Some people prefer one or the other. Uh, If you've been married, it's great to have date nights, and it's also great to talk to your spouse spontaneously. I recommend both things, okay? It's good to set aside time to enjoy each other, and it's good to just talk to each other. Prayer, I think, is very similarly uh, wired the same way, like uh, prayer books. You know, there's a great new book I found called Be Thou My Vision. It just collects ancient prayers and scripture readings. It's almost like an encyclopedia of of ancient Protestant worship and prayer. Really great book, Be Thou My Vision. Um, There's one that a lot of folks like called The Valley of Vision, Puritan Prayers. I don't like that one as well, but it's good. I recommend it. Um, Just great hymns. That's a good way to have scripted prayers, right? Classic hymns of the faith, good scripture songs that you can pray to God, you can speak to God. These are ways to pray scripted prayers. Every Moment Holy is a fun one uh, we've really enjoyed in our family where it takes just ordinary moments of life like morning coffee and it gives kind of a worshipful prayer for that or the hard things in life, changing a diaper and you have a prayer for that, right? It just kind of takes all the silly, ridiculous moments and says, every moment is holy. God's with me in every moment. Those are scripted prayers, but there's also spontaneous prayers. Jesus says again and again to pray like a child, right? 
Just talk to him. You don't need special language. You don't need special words. The scripted prayers are just to, to build the discipline of praying. It just helps us get in the habit of praying truthful, biblical prayers. But you can talk to God like a child. Come to him like a child. Just talk to him. Daddy, I need you. I don't know what to say. And the Spirit will help you. The Spirit intercedes even when we don't have the words. Okay, third point, the grace of real life. The grace of real life. And here we've got a a couple of little ideas that uh, Ray Ortland talks about as like the extremes of life. We've got kind of the ups and downs of life. The real life of the good times and the bad. That's what we're going to finish with in verses 9 through 12. The grace of real life. God meets us in these experiences. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. So verse 9 and 10 is like talking about wealth, the good times. What do you do with the good times in life? You honor God with the good times. You praise God. You make much of God with your gifts, your money, your strengths, your talents, your good years. And then verse 11 and 12, what do you do with the hard times? You honor God as a, as a father who reproves you, who corrects you, who helps you through suffering and difficulty to learn more of who he is, to learn to depend on him. As Paul describes in 2 Corinthians, this thorn in the flesh that God said, I'm not going to remove that. I'm just going to teach you to depend on me more as you struggle with this thorn in the flesh. He says, don't despise the bad times. See them as discipline from God. James 1 talks about this as well. See, every trial is an opportunity to trust God and to depend on Him. So we've got this whole idea of both the good times and the bad are graces from God's hand. Ray Orland says this about giving. He says, how can wise people, people shaped by the wisdom of God, people attached to his steadfast love. How can wise people be tight-fisted? God, our Father, is sharing his resources with us to expand the family business, the enterprise of sharing the good news with the world. I believe healthy giving, healthy giving is less about the exact number or percentage that we give or the hours per week that we donate our time and it's, it's less about those exact numbers and more about the joyful discipline of seeing it as a reflection of God's grace. Here, the, the essence of what he's describing is we honor the Lord from our wealth. He gives us wealth and we're like, God, this is from your hand. You are good. I want to use this to, to make your name bigger so that people can see how good you are. He says, from the first fruits of all your crops, then... Your barns will be filled completely and your vats will overflow with new wine. Saying as God honors you, it starts with God. Don't miss that. We think it starts with us, right? We think it's like, as I give, then God blesses me back. And it's a one-to-one mechanical, you know, we make it into this mechanical thing, health and wealth gospel. If you give money, then you'll get the, the Cadillac, et cetera, et cetera. No, he's saying, as I give to you wealth, honor me with it. And then as you honor me with it, I'll give you more opportunities to honor me with it. That's, that's really the whole idea here. That's picked up in the New Testament as well, in First and Second Corinthians. We've looked at that many times. So we would say, if you're a committed follower of Jesus, you give because Jesus has given to you. 
you partner with the ministries of the local church because you actually believe that what we do is important. That we're not just playing a game, but that we need the truth of God to change us and to change our city. You partner with our missionaries. You're bringing the truth of the gospel all over the world. You partner in, in ways with those benevolence ministries we talk about a lot, like Hope Pregnancy Center, that's actually trying to resource folks and show them that they can keep this child, or they can put this child up for adoption, or they can help choose life. Foster Love, Bell County, where we try to come alongside families that are exhibiting God's grace to orphans and widows. The Afghan resettlement team, this is an exciting time. Continue to pray for us. Our, our family arrives tomorrow. The team has been doing significant work in preparing the way for them, showing the tangible love of Jesus to refugees. So these are all different ways that we honor God with our wealth. We want to be careful not to prescribe it, right? 10% is a good standard number throughout the scriptures. Like if you have no idea where to start, that's a great place to start, right? But really the command of scripture is, is not about a percentage. The command is to honor God with what you have. Pray about it and say, God, you've given me stuff. Let me honor you with what I have. Sharing your money, but also your time, your skills, serving on teams, helping others. And then we also want to honor God with our hard times, with our difficulties, with our lack. What does it look like for you to honor God in the midst of your pain? This is hard. Uh, When I'm praying for God to relieve pain, sometimes I don't even want to pray because I'm scared he he won't answer. I don't know if you ever feel that. Say, God, I know you're good no matter how you answer this prayer. God, I know you're good. It may be your will to prolong the pain, or it may be your will to heal me tomorrow. But because he's a loving father, you can run to him with your requests and trust him. Andrew Brunson, who was imprisoned in Turkey for two years, said it was a very difficult and painful time. And part of that was he started to believe it may be better for the kingdom. More people might meet Jesus if I die in this prison. And that was a terrifying thought to say, man, God, God may want me to look more like Jesus, my Savior, and suffer and die for others. Now God ultimately released him, and now he's going on to share and encourage others with what it looks like to serve the Lord in a culture that's going to bring persecution for obeying Jesus. And so God's multiplying his ministry in other ways. But difficulties are always an opportunity for us to trust God. Say, God, I love you. No matter, no matter how this goes, I'm going to trust you. My child, do not despise discipline from the Lord. Don't loathe his rebuke, for the Lord disciplines those he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. I'm switching back and forth between translations here. It says rebuke here in this translation. It says reproof. This is the idea of being corrected, saying, stop going in this direction, go another direction. Sometimes that's through painful circumstances. Sometimes that's just through someone speaking God's word into your life. But either way, when God painfully stops you and redirects you, see it as a gift from God. I grabbed a picture of a sculptor chiseling a great piece of art here. Um, If a piece of marble could feel things, the piece of marble would not like being made into a beautiful sculpture, right? 
Are you following, following me? I, I don't believe marble can feel things, okay, just for the record. But C.S. Lewis uses this illustration in The Problem of Pain, classic work, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. He says, an artist may not take a lot of trouble over a, a quick little sketch that he uses to entertain a child, right? He may be content to just let it go, even though it's not exactly what he wanted it to look like. But over the great picture of his entire career, right? If an artist is working on a great work, that's like the great work of his, of his life. And if that picture were sentient, things would be totally different. He would take endless trouble. He would doubtless give endless trouble to that picture, to that piece of art, if it could feel, if it could think if it could re-respond. One can imagine a a sentient picture, an aware picture. After being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious destiny. As God's art, we often think, "I I just wish I was a rough sketch. Like, why do you have to make me so beautiful, God? (laughs) And that's what we should be thinking as we're going through pain and difficulty. But then we're wishing not for more love, but for less, Lewis says. It's ultimately about trusting God. And there are mysteries here that we can't completely comprehend, right? God clearly says that evil is evil. We don't want to get fall into the God is so good that evil is now good. No, God can turn evil for good. Romans 8 is clear about that. So we don't want to call evil good. Evil is evil. Evil's been done to you. It's evil. And God's going to reverse that, turn that, and make that right in the end. But even that, He can use to shape you and me and to make us more like Jesus. So the grace of real life, two big applications are our giving of our time, of our resources, honoring God with our wealth. And lament, I think, is a great application for the difficulty of pain, trusting God in the midst of pain. Lamentations is a book of lament. It's a poetic book written by the prophet Jeremiah. And Lamentations 3.22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I hope you hear the reflection of those key words of steadfast love and faithfulness. We used to sing this song when I was a a new Christian. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Bible is full of lament. So when you are struggling, when the Lord's reproof feels like it's too much for you, when His rebuke feels too harsh to you, part of how you trust Him as a loving Father is you share it. Daddy, this is too much. This hurts. You pray. You lament. You sing to him. The entire book of Lamentations is built on this, on the brokenness, on the pain. So the grace of real life, the good times and the bad, we offer those back to Jesus. The good times and the bad are both opportunities for us to both give out of our abundance and trust him even in our lack. So we'll wrap up here. The big idea is grace-based wisdom. Grace-based wisdom We can only grow in wisdom as we receive the grace of God's gracious love, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. It's from the outside. We trust in the Lord. We don't trust in ourselves. We trust in him. We don't trust in us. Um, This idea is also echoed in John chapter 1 when we see the picture of a God who from the outside 
comes into our world. John chapter 1, we're told, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. God has come to us. The Word has come to us in a person, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Why is this cross-reference so important to me? Because steadfast love and faithfulness can be translated as grace and truth. John, the apostle, when he wrote John chapter 1, wanted you to see the connection. God has come to you. The Word has come to you. He is a person. He's come after us, and He is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. John goes on, from His fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, who hid in the cleft of the rock. And as God passed by, he said, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm abounding in grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, Jesus, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. We can't live without his grace his steadfast love, his kindness to us. And we see that most clearly in Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you've given yourself to us. And so as we wrestle with seeing these gifts of life, authority, difficulty of humility, um, the pain of real life, as we wrestle with these things, Lord, help us more and more to see these as gifts of grace from your hand. And we know it's grace because you've given us yourself. Thank you for coming after us. You saw us alone, broken, rebels. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We praise you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.